When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's begin today with a case update in some ways that ranges from Texas to Vermont to New York and to Costa Rica. So 25-year-old Anna Mariah Wilson, or Mo, as most people called her, grew up in picturesque Vermont. And this girl was athletic. She was a gifted alpine skier, and she rose to the level of nationally ranked junior skier who placed third in the 2013 U.S. Junior National Championship downhill event. Her talents led her to attend Dartmouth University, where she was a member of the alpine ski team. And this was a lifelong dream of hers. And after graduating from Dartmouth with a degree in engineering, Mo scored a job at Specialized as a demand planner. And don't worry, I'm not in these circles and I didn't know what Specialized was either, if you're somebody who didn't know. Specialized is a company that manufactures racing bikes. And some are as affordable as $300, while others are in the range of $15,000. And a demand planner is someone who helps sales and marketing and production and finance. They help marry all those talents together for a company to grow and stay competitive. Well, all of this came together for Mo in 2019, but her success on the occupational side did not slow her desire to excel as an athlete. Mo had been biking since she was young. And let's be honest, the snow does melt for part of the year, so... She filled those times with mountain biking through the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And when she graduated college, she got serious about biking. After just two seasons on the elite bike racing circuit, Mo rose to the top in both the mountain and gravel racing categories. Then in the early months of 2022, Mo made the decision to leave Specialized and pursue biking full time. See the travel to the various races combined with the time commitment and then obviously her talent. Well, you put all those together and it makes a pretty easy decision for Mo. It seems like Mo's life is exactly what she had hoped for. That is until her decision to date fellow racer Colin Strickland. And that decision derailed all the hard work and well-laid plans. So who's Colin? Well, in 2022, the 34-year-old was a rising star in the cycling world. He had basically rocked the cycling world when he won the Unbound Gravel 200 in 2019. See, Colin had won other gravel racing titles, but this particular race was attended by several current UCI World Tour professionals, and that was a group of men that Colin wasn't expected to dominate. That win secured Colin valuable endorsements, like one from Red Bull, and quite honestly, it gave him street cred in the cyclist circles. Well, in October of 2021, and I just don't know how to say this gently, so I'm just going to say it, Colin and Mo hook up 
for about a week. Now, her family contends differently. They say they were only friends. But the week-long get-together was abruptly ended when Colin's girlfriend, Caitlin Armstrong, called Mo and told her to relinquish what was hers. She made it clear to Mo that despite taking some time away from each other, she and Colin were still boyfriend-girlfriend, and Mo should exit the picture. But whether the relationship between Mo and Colin was only platonic or if that was more, it didn't end their occasional contact. They're in the cyclist world together. They're going to come across each other. But Colin went on to hide Mo's number in his phone by changing the name on the contact for Mo's number. He also admitted to the police that he would delete messages from Mo so that Caitlin couldn't see them. Well, in the first weeks of May 2022, and this is about eight months after the original week that they spent together, Mo and Colin cross paths again. Mo was in Austin, Texas to compete in a pretty major race. This was going to be her biggest cycling test yet. And she's got a friend in the area. She visits her occasionally and, and she's like called her up and said, hey, can I stay with you? So she's staying with that friend for the week prior to the upcoming race. Well, this is Colin's turf. It's his hometown. And it's also where Colin and Caitlin frequently share a home together. So despite the on-again, off-again nature of their relationship, Colin and Caitlin have now been entangled for three and a half years. But that's not going to stop Colin from reaching out to Mo and inviting her to go for a swim and to get some dinner. And all of this is going to happen with Colin trying to hide it from Caitlin. Before picking up Mo on his motorcycle, Colin turns off his phone. And he then carries on with his late afternoon activities with Mo. After several hours, Colin drops Mo back off at Mo's friend's place. And he turns his phone back on and texts Caitlin an apology text saying, Hey, sorry, my phone died while I was out running errands. But Caitlin, who we're going to find out is quite resourceful, she knew better. And this must have been her breaking point with Colin. Ring doorbell footage shows Caitlin in her black Jeep Cherokee driving near the apartment rented by Moe's friend. Now, this is reported by police as just one minute after Colin drops Moe off. So was Caitlin tracking them somehow? Investigators haven't let us in on that nugget yet, but this we do know. Someone entered the apartment where Moe was staying and shot her multiple times with a 9mm handgun, leaving shell casings behind. And that friend Mo was staying with, well, she returned home to find Caitlin on the bathroom floor, covered in blood from the gunshot wounds to her head and chest. The friend attempted CPR, but paramedics pronounced Mo dead at the scene. And the only person that investigators can find who may have actually heard or seen anything was the landlord to the property. He was in the garage working on his car when he heard someone running down the stairs from the apartment where Mo was staying. Police began searching the area interviewing neighbors, and they find out this weird fact. They find Moe's very, very expensive racing bike about 20 yards from the apartment. So the bike wasn't stolen. It was more or less dumped about 20 yards from where her dead body is. And that could be for two reasons, maybe. The burglary went bad, or maybe the killer wanted to put an exclamation point on the death. Well, it doesn't take long for investigators to piece together that Colin can't be the killer. He's on video in multiple places on that BMW motorcycle. There just wasn't time for him to complete the murder and move Mo's bike down the road. But investigators do see that the same black Jeep Cherokee, that's the one on the ring doorbell footage, 
that it's in Colin's driveway when they speak to him the day following the murder. Colin also admits to buying Caitlin a 9mm handgun just a few months prior. He even lets the police take the gun from his home. Well, after linking the Cherokee in the driveway to Caitlin, authorities discover they have an arrest warrant already waiting for Caitlin. She hadn't paid a medical bill for her Botox injections, and they had the legitimate reason to question her and hold her because of that payment delinquency. Except for one thing. The warrant had a typo. Her birth date was wrong, and the police let Caitlin leave after just a few minutes of questioning. Well, it took six days before police were able to link that 9mm gun that Colin had purchased for him and Caitlin to the shell casings left at the scene. Now, at this point, police are certain that Caitlin entered the home and shot Mo multiple times with that 9mm handgun. Authorities then start looking for Caitlin, but they soon discover she had fled the area. And I don't mean just the Austin area, the murder scene area. She has left the area. She jumped on a flight to LaGuardia Airport in New York City after deleting all her social media accounts and selling her Jeep Cherokee for a little more than $12,000. Now, the cash allowed Caitlin to get a head start on investigators. It seems that after flying into New York, that she visited her sister, who lived at a campsite in upstate New York. Then, after she was there, she went to New Jersey and caught a flight. And the use of a relative's passport helped Caitlin flee the United States, leaving investigators searching internationally for Caitlin. Well, six weeks goes by, and Caitlin has started a new life in Costa Rica. She has traveled to multiple towns and has worked in several yoga studios under various aliases. And officials are only a few steps behind Caitlin when they finally catch up and find her in a hotel on Santa Teresa Beach. She had bruised eyes and bandages on her nose, and authorities found a receipt for $6,350 in the safe in her room. The receipt indicated Caitlin had cosmetic surgery days before, and authorities theorized she was trying to change her looks to avoid capture. Well, after extraditing her on an immigration violation, an Austin grand jury indicted Caitlin for murder, as well as unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. Caitlin has been held in the Travis County Correctional Complex on a $3.5 million bail since her arrest, and her trial is set to start October 30th. We'll just have to see if that is actually going to happen, because Caitlin's been up to her old ways and possibly disrupted the pending trial with another escape attempt. According to the Daily Beast, Caitlin, while being held in the Travis County Correctional Complex, has been working out like crazy. She's been running, doing squats, and of course yoga, all of this throughout her day room and recreation time. She also had faked an injury that would require special medical attention away from the complex. So last week, when two officers took her to a medical plaza to treat the faked injury, Caitlin made a run for it. We even have video of a bystander who witnessed Caitlin scaling a fence as an officer chases her on foot. Now, during the chase, Caitlin stripped off her black and white striped pants that are issued attire by the correctional facility. And underneath those pants, she had on thermals. Authorities believe this was so she could disguise her appearance as an inmate. She also was able to maneuver her hand out of the restraints. And if you're asking why she didn't have leg restraints on, well, that's because the faked injury would have potentially been irritated by the leg shackles, so they didn't have her wear them during the transport. Okay, are you ready for more? Caitlin has a cell phone. I looked it up. 
In this correctional facility, inmates can have tablets or cell phones, and the search of the cell phone turned up a solid, thin piece of metal that she was likely going to use to remove her handcuffs. This girl is a wily one. And the officers who were chasing her and then they eventually capture her just a few blocks from the medical facility after a 10-minute foot chase, well, they sustained scratches and cuts to their arms during that pursuit. And additional charges will be filed for Caitlin trying to escape, but those charges will not be addressed at the murder trial in a week and a half. Now, if the story I've told you makes it seem like this is an open and shut case, Caitlin's lawyer would say, hold up. He believes the timestamp on the ring doorbell footage is incorrect, and he said in court filings that he can prove it. Her lawyer also contends that the narrative that police have painted about Caitlin being an out-of-control, jealous girlfriend is just not accurate. The lawyer points to Collins' interviews with investigators, where he says that he can't fathom that Caitlin could kill anyone. And in the same interview, he says that she isn't any more jealous than your average girlfriend. Well, Caitlin's attorney also says the ballistic matches of Caitlin's gun to the shell casings found at the scene, that it's faulty. It does seem that her attorneys are admitting that she should be charged with fleeing the country, but they say the murder charge will not stick and she will be found innocent. All right, obviously, this is a case that I should be able to update for you pretty quickly since we're only about a week and a half away from her trial. I'll let you know more when I know more. But before we shelf this story until more can be told... I want to share a quote from our victim, Mo Wilson. In an interview with Velo News, shortly before she died, she said the following, Sometimes when people ask, Oh, when did you know you were going to win? I don't like that question. It assumes that I feel that way. Sure, maybe there's times I feel pretty confident that I'm going to win, but it's usually a fight till the end. You never, ever know what's going to happen. So I never try to feel that confident. I never like to feel like I have it in the bag, so to speak. Well, I think that quote explains her grit and fortitude, always pushing until the very end. There's a lot to learn from Mo's humility. All right, let's visit this story out of Portland that has me shaking my head about the alternate reality the suspect lives in. And just listen, because I bet you're going to be shaking your head too here in a bit. All right, 46-year-old Jeffrey Hammond comes from generational money. His grandparents, Daniel and Mary O'Brien, had numerous business interests that include properties, hotels, a golf course, nursing homes, fast food franchises, gas stations, warehouses, and lots and lots of family assets and cash. And this tell is as old as time because the family started fighting openly over the money once Daniel and Mary died. Six children and 15 grandchildren were placed into individual trusts, and those trusts were overseen by one of Mary and Daniel's children. So that's Jeffrey's uncle. He's the one overseeing the trusts. Now, multiple lawsuits were filed against the uncle overseeing the trusts, one of those lawsuits being filed by or in part by Jeffrey. He was frustrated by the distribution of the money. Well, eventually, those suits were settled, but Jeffrey has maintained that he was coerced into settling. But as you'll see, Jeffrey was in the business of playing with other people's money. And in 2020, Jeffrey started two businesses, Aquantium LLC and Aquantium Research LLC. Both companies dealt in commodity pools and futures funds. He had a, like a specialized interest in a form of digital currency. CoinGeek explained his business model this way. 
Aquantium enables the issuance of tokens to investors. So those tokens represent futures participation. So think of things that aren't grown yet, like corn or soybeans, or maybe precious metals that aren't extracted yet. CoinGeek said those tokens can be used to trade those futures. But this year in May, Jeffrey filed for bankruptcy. The Aquantium business model had failed. And to say it nicely, Jeffrey was having a lot of bad days this summer. Well, last week, Jeffrey pulled his 2020 black Mercedes SUV in front of a posh Portland hotel. He was blocking traffic, and those around him weren't too thrilled. So 48-year-old Ryan Martin tried to pull his gray Toyota Tundra around the Mercedes. Now, during this process, the two, Ryan and Jeffrey, they did what I think you can expect they would do. They exchanged the universal communication of the middle finger. But it didn't end there. Ryan threw his truck into park, got out, and walked over to the SUV, tapping on the driver's side window with his knuckle. According to a Portland police affidavit, Jeffrey was loading his gun with ammunition as Ryan approached. Jeffrey rolled down the window, the two shouted back and forth, and then Jeffrey shot Ryan in the chest. Ryan fell to the ground, landing on his back, bleeding everywhere. According to police, Jeffrey wasn't done. As he was leaning out the window to shoot Ryan again, Ryan made the final plea by saying to Jeffrey, I'm sorry, I had a bad day. Police say Jeffrey's gun had malfunctioned or else he would have gotten off another shot right then. As he's trying to fix his gun, he pauses to flash a badge at Ryan, kind of like a police badge. And I'm not really sure who's carrying something like that around, but he flashes that badge and he tells Ryan, you're lucky I didn't shoot you in the head. At about the same time, Sam Gomez, who was presenting at a conference near the Moxie Hotel, well, he walks out some doors to see the mayhem unfold. He grabs his cell phone and starts to video the scene with Ryan bleeding out in the gutter and Jeffrey fiddling with a gun in the driver's seat of his Mercedes. Well, Jeffrey's anger obviously wasn't complete. He points the gun at Sam and shoots him too. The bullet passed through one of Sam's legs and lodged in the femur of his other leg. Now, at this point, Jeffrey drives away, shooting one more bullet in the general direction of Sam, but not hitting anyone. So remember how I said he lives in an alternate reality? You would think he's going to try to get away at this point, right? Nope. He drives to the Multnomah County Courthouse, calling 911 on his way there. During the 911 call, Jeffrey freely admits to shooting the two men, but claims he was justified in doing so because Ryan menaced him and Sam might have had a weapon. The police affidavit says Jeffrey wound his way to the top of the parking garage at the courthouse, parked his SUV, and entered the building to turn himself into authorities. He later allegedly told police that he knew Ryan was unarmed, but he would have shot him again if his gun hadn't malfunctioned. He then allegedly reasoned away his attack on Sam, who was filming the situation. He said that he recognized Sam's behavior as a military attack, and he was worried he would be ambushed. Police then say Jeffrey was worried about other groups of people stalking him, and he needed to be on high alert, and that is the other reason he was wielding the gun. Well, back at the Moxie Hotel, first responders attempt to save Ryan's life, but he dies at the scene. And Sam is transported to the hospital where he underwent surgery to repair his femur. He is expected to make a full recovery. Now, despite Jeffrey's claims that he was correct in shooting the two victims, he has been arrested for murder and attempted murder. 
And this isn't the first time he has had run-ins with the law. He has a total of 18 criminal arrests on his record, spanning from 1994 to 2021. And those arrests span four different states. Seven of them pertain to vehicular crimes. Some of those include careless driving or excessive speed and improper turning at an intersection. And he also had a domestic battery charge in Illinois in 1999 and a simple assault charge in 2014. And at some point in his career, he claimed he was from Australia, which isn't true either. And Jeffrey Hammond isn't his given name. He changed it from Jeffrey Edward Mandela somewhere before 2019. So remember that alternate reality? I think we're in the middle of that. Okay, let's take a moment to remember Ryan, who died in the parked road rage incident. Ryan is the father of four kids, 27-year-old Taylor, 22-year-old Anna, 20-year-old Emily, and 17-year-old Drew. His oldest child wrote on Facebook that he wanted everyone to know what an amazing man and father his dad was. He wrote that Ryan was the most intelligent and hardworking person he knew. He promised his legacy would be carried through in everything he did. I also had the opportunity to read a Facebook post by a woman who helped aid both Sam and Ryan just seconds after they were shot. She expressed her deep sadness that someone took the power of owning a gun and misused that power. She also said she will forever be linked to Sam and that their healing process will now be intertwined. Now with the video evidence of Jeffrey shooting Sam, this is going to be a tough case for whatever attorney takes it on or is assigned to take it on. And I'll keep you updated. And finally, this super quick update out of Idaho. The judge overseeing the conviction of Lori Vallow Daybell and the future trial of Chad Daybell has issued an order releasing the body of seven-year-old J.J. Vallow to Larry and Kay Woodcock. Those are the grandparents. And remember, these two are the ones who really initiated the investigation into Lori and Chad back in the fall of 2019. Well, upon hearing the news... Kay Woodcock wrote on the platform X the simple phrase, praise Jesus, we are grateful. Now, Lori Vallow Daybell was found guilty of the murder of her children, JJ and 17-year-old Tylee, and conspiracy to commit murder for Chad's first wife, Tammy Daybell. That verdict was handed down in May of this year. And you might be asking why only JJ's remains were released to the Woodcocks. Well, Tylee isn't biologically their grandchild. And Lori is awaiting extradition to Arizona to face a murder trial for her fourth husband, Charles Vallow, who was killed by her brother, Alex, in the summer of 2019. Alex claimed it was self-defense, but Arizona authorities have brought conspiracy to commit murder charges against Lori. Now, Alex died in December of 2019, so Lori will face those charges alone. She is currently serving a life sentence in the women's prison in Pocatello, Idaho. And Chad has yet to face his capital murder charges in the deaths of J.J., Tylee, and his wife, Tammy. His trial is set for April of 2024, and it's expected to last 12 weeks. In a statement released by the Woodcocks, they said the following, The last several years have been filled with pain and grief as we traveled this long, arduous road. We have waited and prayed for this day for so long and are immeasurably relieved that J.J. will finally be laid to rest. We're anxious to find out when Tylee, too, can be laid to rest. Our greatest wish is for JJ and Tylee to be celebrated for the joy and love they brought to this world and for them to finally rest in peace. Only then will our hearts begin to heal. 
Well, that's your Thursday episode of Rise and Crime. Give us a follow on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And if you're coming to the Murder With My Husband live show in Brea, California next week, make sure you say hi. I'd love to meet you there. Join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.